Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. We're learning tonight about yet another undisclosed exchange the president had with Vladimir Putin. It was attended by no American note-takers, no American interpreters, just the president and Melania and Putin and Putin's own interpreter. This is wildly out of step with the usual protocol. Andrew Miller saying no to that subpoena. That is the way some conservative legal groups are trying to challenge the constitutionality of Mueller's investigation. I had no collaboration with WikiLeaks. I'm not charged with conspiracy. Believe me, if they could have made that case, they would have. But they, they want to silence me because I will stand up for Donald Trump. That's what this is really about. Hello, welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Yasha Monk. For the last days, I've been looking at some of the really horrible scenes coming out of Venezuela. And as a political scientist, I've been trying to put this in the context of what I see as the rise of authoritarian populism around the world and the dangers it creates. When Hugo Chavez was elected in the late 1990s, a lot of people held high hopes for it. In fact, a lot of the people who are now in charge of the Labour Party in the United Kingdom, for example, said that this was vision of the future that other countries should emulate. Many of the social policies which Chavez pursued were well-intentioned. I agreed with them. But the problem with that form of authoritarian populism is not its economic policy in one direction or another. It is the fact that it doesn't tolerate any power other than that of the populist who claims to speak for the people. And once he starts to get unpopular, once people turn against him because of economic mismanagement or corruption or anything else, he simply will not let his power go. So what we are seeing now, the brutal, ruthless dictatorship which the country has finally become under the unsubtle hand of Nicolas Maduro, is in many ways a logical consequence of its populist element. I don't know how to respond to that. I certainly don't think that the United States under Donald Trump getting involved is the right solution. But any of us who actually care for the citizens of Venezuela, as the cheerleaders of that regime have pretended for so long, must now hope that a terrible dictator is pushed aside and the people of Venezuela can finally determine their own fate again. My guest today is Benjamin Wittes. Ben is the editor of Lawfare. He is a great expert on the intersection between the national security state and the legal world, which has become strangely important to our national life over the last few years. Before we get started, I'd like to invite our Southern California listeners to our live show on Thursday, February 7th at the Ace Hotel in downtown Los Angeles. Our live show is a nice way to peek behind the curtain of our podcast and Virginia Haffinen, Jamal Bowie and Leon Krause will be there. Just go to slate.com slash live to get tickets. Benjamin Wittes is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and editor-in-chief of Lawfare. Welcome to Trumpcast. It's great to see you. Ben, on Lawfare, you track and help your readers understand the latest developments with the investigations into Donald Trump and all kinds of other things. I find that it's really hard to actually 
keep the overview. I know so many facts that I never knew I wanted to know about. <laughs> and it's not at all clear to me that I have a deeper understanding of the lay of land than I would have done a year or two ago. Where do you think we're at? What do we know? What actually is happening? So first of all, to answer that question, let's back up and ask the question why that is. Okay. Because I agree with you, we are all information rich and wisdom and knowledge poor at this point. Yeah, if ever there was a political situation that justifies the phrase not seeing the wood for the trees. Right. I feel like that's where I'm at. I see lots of trees. I don't understand how the wood is working. Exactly. And so the reason for that is that we fundamentally haven't decided or learned what the narrative arc here is. And in that environment, it's very hard to figure out what are key events and what are random foliage that you should ignore, right? And so one possibility is that the narrative arc is, let's go from the most extreme to the least extreme, Right. The president was bought and paid for by the Russian state. His campaign was thoroughly infiltrated and there was an active operation on his behalf in which his campaign was in some sense participating all in order to get a bunch of Russian agents into office, and that was successful. Right. right That's right. the one one extreme version. The other extreme version is this is some individuals had some relationships, some of them were untoward, and there was no cohesive understanding at all with the Russians. Right, so Trump has no, certainly knowing and perhaps not even really any unwitting deep connection to Russia. Sure, it's a huge campaign, there's a lot of people in its orbit, some of those people did a couple of weird things, but it really doesn't sort of add up to anything. Correct. Trump is guilty of nothing more than being generally sympathetic to Vladimir Putin, saying some nice things about him, having some stupid, reckless people in his orbit and exercising his Article 2 powers to remove the FBI director and bully law enforcement. Right. So both of those extremes seem reasonably implausible to me, right? I agree. Where on within that vast scale do we fall or how do we think about where we fall along that vast scale? Well, so scale? in order to have a sense, right, of where we are, right, what's forest, what's trees, what's the moss growing on the side of the tree that you don't want to get too fixated on, you really need to have a sense of where you are on that spectrum, what you think the truth is in that spectrum, because that defines for you, I think, what the salient events are and what the extraneous noises. And everybody, I think, agrees that there's a lot of extraneous noise, not you have to be quite a conspiracy theorist to see significance in every event that's getting reported. It's difficult to avoid doing that, by the way, right? Because humans are animals that are driven to pattern recognition. Exactly. And so when you see five dots, you want to imagine an image. I mean, we look up in the sky and we see you know, wheels and bears, and I'm terrible at my stars. But, right, I mean, they're not. They're just random stars. So it's hard to exercise the self-control to make sure that you don't see a coherent story where there is none. But at the same time, you don't want to be the naive idiot who just won't see the story when it's staring in the face. Exactly. And here's the problem. Without knowing the contours of the actual narrative story, you don't know which events to put in which category, right? right? right. And so that's why the problem that you started with is really hard. Now, here's where I think we are, which is... The big reveal. Well, the big reveal is a process reveal. (laughs) I think we're about to learn 
the answer to a big gestalt question, which is to what extent is there a narrative through arc here mm-hmm. and what is it? Uh, and that How, will, why, why are we about to learn that? We're How about, are we about, to, to, we're about that? to learn that because if we assume that the stories about the Mueller investigation winding down are true, it is because Mueller has learned to the extent he feels he can mm. the broad answer to that question. It is reasonable to expect that one way or another, he is committed to telling that story, either by bringing a series of criminal cases or by writing a report or by you know some other means. And Bill Barr, which we can talk about, you know, did make clear, although he didn't commit to releasing the report in its entirety, that he is committed to the maximum extent possible, consistent with, you know, other obligations, making sure the public has the benefit of those findings. And so I do think to the extent that the events are about to or within some reasonable period of time going to impose discipline on the cacophony of Mm. information that we're all experiencing. Um, Now, if what you're asking is, what do I think that picture will look like? Give us your best guess. I have been really careful not to do that. And so the most I have ever done is laid out, or pretty early in the thing, my colleagues, Quinta Jurassic and Jane Chong and I laid out what we called seven theories of the case, which were... Were the two extremes basically being the ones you outlined? Exactly. Earlier, right? the, 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 and then there's like five complicated ones in between. So which of the scenarios is it? So I think the circumstances have removed from plausibility several of the more innocent ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we are now in a land where the... I still don't believe the president is an active Russian agent. I don't believe there has ever been a meeting where they said, and now we will discuss the terms of the collusion and the, right, the, right. the collusion deal was hammered out, right? I'm like, I could be wrong. Maybe it happened, but that would still rock my world if we found that out. But I do think we are looking at a situation in which it is pretty clear that Russian intelligence had a sustained multi-pronged effort to penetrate the Trump campaign, the Trump organization, and the Trump transition, and succeeded in doing so on a number of occasions, on a number of different issues, uh, through a number of different people. And, uh, you know, I think the president was certainly in a position in which he, if he didn't know that some of that activity was happening, he certainly should have known that some of that activity was happening. And so where that falls all factually on the scale of intentionality, I don't know. And I, you know, I don't want to make up facts. And so mm-hmm. I don't, I've actually been pretty disciplined about not trying to guess. But I think the range of possibilities has narrowed and it's narrowed on the more upsetting end of the scale. One question I have then is when you actually zoom out from the details and you look at the big picture, it becomes really hard to me to connect some of the specific controversies we've seen to that larger story and that narrative. How sure are we that the picture that will emerge from whatever the special counsel finds is in fact clear-cut? Not. But I do think a well-crafted report by Mueller will define the parameters of the, of what is forest and what is trees, right? So I think it will tell us 
very clearly, at least if he does it well, and I, this is a group of professionals and I think they will do it well, is the story that we're looking at here isolated grifters who came together around the Trump campaign, each with their own grift and a bunch of reckless, stupid and self-defeating statements and actions on the part of Donald Trump? That's one possibility. And, you know, that is, it's a bunch of trees that happen to exist in more or less the same place. And all the trees are, I don't know what Russian wood is, but, you know, all the trees are made of a particular type of Russian wood, right? We're really starting to torture that metaphor. Yeah, we're going to make it worse, right? <laughs> or is the story here the story of a Russian operation that involved, that touched certain U.S. parties or is the story here a story of collusion? And I think they may not be able to prove the answer that they come to, but we will be able to understand, I think, from the pattern of activity, what they believe the story would be. And that will help define our own understanding of what the grove of trees that we're looking at is. Let's take a detour, not too detailed a detour, into the national debate about the Covington High School students and that video at Lincoln Memorial. Which I have not watched, and I have only the dimmest sense of that debate. I know it happened. What struck me about it is that, you know, it's a relatively limited set of pieces of evidence. It's a few videos. Everybody has access to the same information in this case. Unlike in the Russia-Trump story, where there's at this point, you know, you could fill half a library with all of the things that have been written about it, it is relatively limited. And yet, ultimately, the nation has split into views, factual views about what was going on there, which exactly track where people's ideological inclinations were before that weekend, which is to say you could, with very few exceptions, with incredible accuracy, predict who would say what about this video, given where they stand in the landscape of American politics. Now, that concerns me about the Miller report, because even if, as you're suggesting, it will be clear-cut enough that a relatively obvious story emerges one way or the other, whatever that story may be, my fear is that people who are convinced that Trump is secretly a Russian agent are not going to cease believing that because of Mueller. And people who have an interest in running interference for the president and explaining anything he does away as virtuous and unproblematic are going to find some way to say, well, you know, okay, so perhaps he did tell Cohen to lie about this, but it's only because he wanted all of this investigation to stop and he's being persecuted and so on. So really, there's nothing to the story and we shouldn't be concerned, which is to say, even if the Mueller report in the abstract and some kind of theoretical sense allows us to get to the truth of the matter, do you think it'll actually move political opinion in the United States? And do you think it'll actually have an impact on what happens next? Okay, so you're framing as one problem, a, as a po political polarization problem, what to me is actually two distinct political polarization problems. I want to disaggregate them a little We're bit. Always happy to find out we have even more problems than I thought. <laughs> so the problem of Trump supporters not accepting a report that is fundamentally inculpatory is different from the problem of people who are Trump opponents not accepting a report that is sort of exonerating. And here's why. Okay. It is actually impossible to prove that Trump isn't a Russian agent, right? And so you cannot prove, and a responsible counterintelligence inquiry 
would never prove, you know, would never seek to prove that something didn't happen, right? I don't feel like you've proven to my satisfaction that you're not a Russian counterintelligence agent. Correct. And, like, and to the FBI, there are only two types of people, like agents and possible agents, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? And so the most that the, the most that, you know, the, clearing people is not really what investigations do. Look, I get that. And if you work in an intelligence agency, clearly that's the mindset you have to have about the world. But there's a huge difference between anybody could in theory be a Russian agent and we have actual evidence which raises a substantial possibility that you might be that. So yes. if it's very important to our politics that if a politician is accused of potentially collaborating with a foreign nation with an adversarial power in illicit ways... And in fact, all of that information is bogus and there's a big investigation into it and they show that it's bogus, then it's really important for our politics that we go back to saying, you know what, there's really no reason to think this person is a foreign agent. Sure, in theory, anybody could be, but we have actually shown that all the reasons to suspect this person were bogus and we should just clear that out of our politics. Now, I don't think that's what Mueller is going to find well, about Trump for all kinds of reasons. But if he did, yes. I think it's not enough to say, well, it's perfectly reasonable to suspect everybody of being a Russian agent. Right. So that was not where I was going with that. OK. I agree with you. If the end result of the Mueller investigation is to debunk the fact that the Trump Tower meeting took place, the fact that Paul Manafort ever had connections with shady people and became, you know, the campaign chairman of the of the uh, the fact that, you know, uh, George Papadopoulos had these weird meetings and uh, well, almost hardly if it establishes that there are lots of other facts we don't know about, which clearly put that in perspective right. and show that this was much more isolated than we now have reason to. Feel. Correct. I will be the first person if the contents of the Mueller report amount to an exoneration. I will be the first person to say, let's move on. Right. The, the but again, but my question was one of prediction, and you're free to wiggle out of it, which is, if that happened, now, I don't think it's likely to happen, but if that happened, do you think that, in fact, most people would move on and exonerate? So I and and my, thing, my feeling is, no. And of course, the same is just as true, or perhaps doubly true. On the other side, I also think that if what the Mueller report finds is really damaging, is closer to the extreme that you started the conversation with than even at this point we think is likely, I think there's going to be a lot of people in Trump's circle or even perhaps on Fox News and in the wider sort of set of supporters of his who find some way of not believing that at all either. And that worries me because we're all putting so much hope into the findings of the Mueller report, not just epistemically, not just I want to know what the layover wood is, but also politically, also in terms of, so then somehow it's going to save us. It's going to show us how we get out of this nightmare. And I'm increasingly skeptical that that'll be the case. As I say, I think you are creating a reciprocity here that's eliding an important distinction. On the exoneration side, I agree with you. I, I actually disagree with you. If the Mueller report were powerfully exculpatory, I do think a lot of the issues would go away and people like me would say, eh, we read a lot into things that weren't, don't turn out to be significant. I do think there is a group of bitter enders who probably wouldn't, but I think that would get marginalized pretty quickly. The much more likely exculpatory scenario would not give rise to that. And that is, we examined this, this issue we were unable to prove mm -hmm. that X happened. Not we don't think it happened, right. not we think it's unlikely, not we 
we're casting doubt mm. on it. We're unable to prove mm. it using admissible evidence beyond a reasonable doubt. And if you aggregate a bunch of those, you can have a report that effectively legally clears everybody and yet reinforces the perception of the problem such that people like me would say, you know, hey, the lack of proof beyond a reasonable doubt is not evidence that something didn't happen. And the judgment of history will be very different based on the evidence Mueller collected the judgment of history and contemporary journalism should be very different mm. from the very high legal standards. So you could imagine a report that Trump would claim vindication by that a huge number of people would see as very, very disturbing. That's, that seems very reasonable. And that's a different now, what problem. About, now, now, what about the other side? Right. Which so is in some ways more, so more that's, a, that's a different problem than the other side, where imagine a powerfully damning report that says, you know, the president colluded. The president was a Russian agent and here's all the evidence. And then he obstructed justice to prevent the investigation of that. And we won't indict him only because we uh, can't indict a sitting president. But we're sending all this information for the political system. To I do agree with you that there is a that there is a group of people who will simply not accept that. Hmm. I don't think it's as big as you might think it is. Nixon left office with a 25% approval rating. That is to say that 25% after Watergate still mm. believed in Richard Nixon. So the floor that we should be imagining for Trump's approval rating here is not zero. It's probably around 25%. In a partisan polarized environment like this one, it's probably a bit higher than that. His approval rating right now is under 40%. So there's I think just under 40, right? Just under 40. So there's, I think, probably about a 10 to 15 percent possible additional movement. And I expect that a powerful Mueller report that really showed that he had engaged in behavior not consistent with his oath of office would actually attack some of that. Hmm. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. So it seems plausible to me that for a lot of Republican congressmen and more importantly at the moment senators to actually be willing to turn against Trump, he probably would have to fall under something like 33, perhaps 30 percent of support. It's hard to think about whether or not a damning Mueller report might make that difference. I agree with you that it's not at all impossible. So I have another question for you, which is a little bit what I've been driving at in this conversation because I've been thinking a lot about that. Yoni Applebaum on the cover of The Atlantic has made a very persuasive argument that we should impeach Donald Trump right now. And he lays out essentially three sets of arguments for it. A moral argument that we all should want to remove Donald Trump from office if we possibly can because of his attacks on our democracy, because of many of his horrible and cruel policies. A legal argument, which I'm less well qualified to judge, but which seems plausible to me. And then a set of strategic and practical arguments of all of the good things that impeachment would do, which I strenuously disagree. My sense is that for there's a strong moral argument to remove him, for there's a plausible legal argument to start impeachment proceedings strategically, 
it would potentially be a disaster because we need to think not only about how to beat Trump, but also how to beat Trumpism. And because right now, I just don't think that the Senate would convict him. And if he is seemingly, supposedly cleared by the Senate, even though that is not the legal meaning of the Senate refusing to vote to convict him, it would be a huge PR victory for him and it may be his best shot at getting reelected in 2020. I would love to get your sense of ways and Mr. Bate. Do you think this is the moment to start impeachment proceedings? Do you think we should wait for the Mueller report and then, depending on its findings, do that? Do you think we should never do it? What, what, what do you think? All right. So this is, uh, for me, an extremely complicated question. And I have to answer it at, I think, three different levels. Please. So the first is, more than a year, year and a half ago, I wrote a piece with Jane Chong arguing that a member of Congress who took his or her oath of office seriously should be considering the president's conduct in the context of an impeachment inquiry. And so if you ask me as a member of Congress who had sworn an oath, what do I think the right answer is absent any strategic considerations? Uh, you know, yes, I think the president's conduct requires examination in light of the impeachment clauses. That seems true to me. Second, if I were the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee and I knew that a Mueller report was forthcoming, would I, as a tactical matter, say, hey, we're going to have a pretty developed record pretty soon. Mm. It is going to answer certain questions like, is there credible evidence that the president has committed offenses that this committee should then consider impeachable? So should we anticipate that and start or should we wait and see what that record looks like in order to make a more informed judgment? I think I probably would as a prudential matter, say, hey, let's wait and see what we've got before we decide how to process mm. it. And I understand those two points are essentially in tension with one mm. another. And I just want to say I live with that tension. I, I, I'm not going to try to resolve it. The third question, which are the tactical questions on which on, on, on the, the strategic questions on which you and Yoni disagree, I actually don't want to think about those questions. I am really glad that you spend your hmm. time thinking about those questions, but I am fundamentally a legal analyst and you know, I sort of feel like my job is not to game out political scenarios, not that that's disreputable or that other people shouldn't do it. It's just not what I do. And by the way, I'm not very good at it. And so I'm a sort of conscientious objector on those strategic questions. There is one thing that I do think Jerry Nadler, the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, should do today, like today, tomorrow. Um, Yesterday. And yeah, which is write a letter to Bob Mueller that says Ken Starr was statutorily obligated under the independent counsel law to refer to this committee information that might be grounds for impeachment. That law was the product of a referral that Leon Jaworski made during Watergate where he made the judgment, hey, I have the evidence. They have the authority. I'm going to have my grand jury send up to Congress, to the House Judiciary Committee, a pile of information mm -hmm. that they might consider pursuant to their constitutional obligation. That exact situation may exist today which is one entity, the House Judiciary Committee, has the authority but not the evidence. Hmm. And another entity, this Office of Special Counsel, has the evidence but not the authority. And so if I were Jerry Nadler, 
I would write a letter to Bob Mueller that's, I wouldn't make it public. I mean, I don't, hmm. not, not talking about doing anything in secret that says, look, we have the obligation to consider any information that may be grounds for impeachment. If you have any such information that a reasonable member of Congress on this committee would want to see, we ask that you refer it to us so that we can perform our constitutional function. And that might be a way to reconcile the desire to engage your actual constitutional obligations as a member of that committee with the absence of the developed record that you would need to do it responsibly. I understand your desire not to think and talk about strategy. And I have the same instinct. In some ways, the case is very simple, which is that I think Donald Trump has openly attacked the most basic aspects of a liberal democracy in such a way that it warrants removal, I think. He did that even before he was elected, when he said, for example, that he might not accept the outcome of the election, an utterly shocking statement by a democratic politician. And I do have that temptation. But as somebody who studies the rise of populism and liberal democracy around the world, I have seen how many times the defenders of democracy have gone wrong because they've been righteous, but strategically short-sighted. So I don't think everybody has to play this game. But I think before we rush into impeachment, it's important we do. Can I just say on that point that I... When I said I don't think it's disreputable to think about that, I am really glad that people like you are thinking about the universe of available tools, Hmm. including the strategic non-use of tools that are available. My job is to say, hey, impeachment is an available remedy here. It is a legally available remedy. It is an appropriate remedy. What people think is the right thing for them to do with all of the prudential factors that you're articulating Hmm. I am not saying they must do this in order to be good citizens. Right. The other thing I just want to point out, because I found it very interesting, is the way you reason through this, even just on the institutional side, on the legal side. And you were saying if you were a congressman, you would think about your oath of office. If you were on the House Judiciary Committee, you would think about the particular institutional duties and prerogatives of that position. And those two things end up being at loggerheads with each other. And that is an essential element of a liberal democracy, that what action you should take, how you should think about something should depend in part on the particular duties and responsibilities of your office. And I think one of the great problems we've seen in the last two years is that people haven't done that, that Republican congressmen have acted as Republicans and not at all as congressmen in many cases. So I just wanted to highlight that because it's an important aspect of what it is in a liberal democracy and the fight against Trump, I think, is in part a fight to to preserve that. Ben, thank you so much for coming to the studio today. Thanks, and it's great to see you. That's our show for today. Say hello to us on Twitter and let us know what you think. I'm at Yasha Monk, Y-A-S-C-H-A underscore M-O-U-N-K. And you can find the show at Real Trumpcast. Before you go, I have one more request. Sign up for Slate Plus. Do it. It's only $35 for the first year, and it gets you the full roster of Slate podcasts. Go to slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus. Our show today was produced by Melissa Kaplan. I'm Yasha Monk. Thanks again for listening to Trumpcast. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.